0: I have a question or for the under sevens, if they want to go through with Keith now. Let's just pray, shall we? Father, we come to you this morning. We give you thanks for your great love to us. We thank you that we can declare it as well with my soul. Thank you for the love that you've given to us, expressed in Jesus. Thank you that you've reached down and saved us. And we can declare this morning that we love you because you love us. Father, we pray now that you would meet with us, teach us, encourage us, challenge us, change us, we pray, as we look into your word may we not just encounter your word but may we encounter your holy spirit so that spirit and word together we might be transformed into your likeness and become more like the lord jesus so bless us encourage us now we pray as we look into your word together and we ask this in jesus name amen you <coughs> should have an outline on your seat and there's pens in the uh, tray in front of you in the back of the chairs if you want to use those as we go through this morning It's amazing how, as humans, our instinct just seems to be to gather into groups of people that have a specific identity, to become tribal and and gather in in gangs and groups of people and then be hostile towards other groups of people that are a little bit different to us. You only have to look at the way people in our region define themselves as Newcastle supporters or Sunderland supporters and not even as supporters just from Newcastle or Sunderland and and we kind of group into our little groups and sometimes this spills out into violence And we've seen that, sadly, um, in recent uh, weeks and months uh, and years in Newcastle and in Sunderland as as people kind of gather in gangs or or in identity groups and then as they reach out and attack others. I hope nobody can see themselves in those photographs. That would be awkward and embarrassing if anybody could. But, you know, whilst there's there's nothing wrong with a good bit of uh, good-natured banter between sports fans there's something seriously wrong when it ends up with hatred and with violence. There's something seriously wrong wrong when one group of uh, people set themselves up against another group of people because of their skin colour or because of their language or even because of their accent or because of their nationality or because sometimes perhaps of their social standing. The root cause of hostility when we get into these kind of groups between, between one group of people and another is what the Bible calls sin. The Bible commands us to love our neighbour, to love one another, to love all those around us unconditionally and when we find ourselves pitting ourselves against other people because they look different to us or speak differently or or from a different background, whatever it is, that is sin. We're doing the very opposite to loving our neighbour when we huddle into our groups and we pit ourselves against other groups of people. The fantastic thing to see, though, is when people's lives are changed by Jesus and people who were once pitted against each other come together and are united together because of Jesus. And that's fantastic, isn't it? When two people who perhaps at one time were alienated from each other because of their race or because of their background or even their football team can come together and can be one because of the Lord Jesus. And we're going to see that in action in our passage today. In the time of Jesus, the Jews had another group of people that they really hated and despised called the Samaritans. And the Samaritans equally hated the, and despised the Jews just as, just as much. These two people groups actually absolutely hated one another. Way back in 722 BC, the ten northern uh, family clans, the tribes of Israel, the ten northern tribes of Israel had been taken into captivity by what was the Assyrian empire and then people from other races were moved in by the Assyrians into that area and were settled into that area and they were intermarried with what were the ten tribes of Israel so that the people there were no longer racially pure Israelites and not only were they then of mixed race but the people that came into the area and uh, married into these Israelite families brought their own religious practices with them and the people group that developed and that racial group that developed Through that process and the land that they lived in was called the Samaritans. The area was called Samaria and the people became known as Samaritans. They had the same heritage, some of them, historically as the Jews, but they were different. And the two tribes of Israel that were left in the south of what had been Israel were the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, just commonly known as the Kingdom of Judah. And they became known as the Jews, and Jews just being short for Judah. So when you fast forward and we get to the time of Jesus... The Jews and Samaritans pretty much hated each other. They absolutely despised each other. The Samaritans only accepted, for instance, the first five books of the Bible. They rejected all the rest and they said they weren't from God. And then that meant, of course, that everything that, those, that the rest of those books contained, they didn't understand, they didn't know, they didn't believe and so on. And that had real consequences, which we'll look at this morning. They'd also built their own temple. God had said that the temple should be built in Jerusalem, but they, because they rejected the rest of the books of the Old Testament, they built their own temple in Gerizim, which was their capital city. So they didn't worship at the temple in Jerusalem with God, as God had commanded them to. And although they did believe that God was sending somebody special, his king, a, a prophet and a king, to be the saviour, they didn't really understand who he was because they didn't understand or they didn't accept most of the Old Testament. And all the teachings in the Old Testament, which uh, little by little tell us more and more about this Messiah, this Christ that was going to come, God's special chosen King, because they rejected them and didn't read them, they didn't understand fully who this person was. They didn't know what to expect. And before we read today's passage from the book of Acts, we're going to read John chapter 4, just to give us a little insight and background which sets us up for today's passage. So we're going to read from John chapter 4, verses 19 to 26, and then we're going to read from 39 to 42. And this covers an incident in the life of Jesus with a woman who was a Samaritan. So here we have Jesus, a Jew, meeting a woman who was a Samaritan and we have this fascinating little dialogue. There's loads of stuff going on here but we're going to focus in particular um, uh, sort of problems that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. So John chapter 4 and we're going to read from verse 19 to 26. And this is uh, Jesus has sat down, he's talking with this woman and verse 19, Sir, the woman said talking to Jesus, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. And then if we just go down to verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. So a fantastic little event going on here, but this was confined just to a few Samaritans, and we're going to see the outcome of that in Acts in a moment. Now as Jesus talked with this lady, he challenged her beliefs, on a whole number of things. He challenged her, her marital situation. He challenged her morality. He challenged her relationship with God. He showed her that she could have grace and salvation. But one of the things he did was challenge her beliefs as a Samaritan. And he said this, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus pointed out that they were worshipping the God of the Old Testament, but because they rejected most of the Old Testament, they didn't really know much about him. They worshipped, said Jesus, what they did not know. The Jews, however, and Jesus was a Jew, they worshipped what they did know. They worshipped the God of the Old Testament in his fullness of what he'd revealed himself and how he'd revealed himself through the writing of the Old Testament. And much of the content of the Old Testament described the way in which God would save people and make people, make mankind right with himself. It would be through sending a special one, a special one that God would send. It would be the Messiah or the Christ in the Greek language. But that Messiah was a Jew. And if they had accepted the Old Testament, they would have understood the fact that salvation... Jesus told her, is from the Jews. In other words, it would be a Jewish king that salvation would come through. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, through whom God would make it possible for people to be saved from their sins and get right with him. And the Samaritan woman replied by saying, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. In other words, all the things that we don't know because we've rejected the Old Testament, the Messiah will tell us these things. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you, Am he. And this woman at that moment accepts that Jesus is the Messiah and she told many other Samaritans in her town as well and many of them believed in Jesus as Messiah as we read. But the Samaritans in general still rejected the Old Testament. These were just a few folks in a much bigger group of people. They still rejected the Old Testament, the temple and the Messiah. They still hated the Jews and the Jews still hated them. And of course we have this, the, the famous story of the Good Samaritan and as Jesus is trying to teach Uh, people what it means to love their neighbour. To a Jew, he shows them that to love your neighbour is to love people even that are uh, estranged from you. And he uses the picture of the Samaritan. So the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. And in fact, if you look at Luke chapter 9, verses 52 to 54, we can see the Samaritans' attitude towards the Jews and the disciples as Jews, their attitude towards the Samaritans. Look at that. And it says, And he, Jesus, sent messengers on ahead. He went into a Samaritan to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? That's a, a really even-handed response, isn't there? These guys don't want to welcome them. Let's just kill them all, Lord. Let's just have fire and burn them up. That's how much we like Samaritans. The Samaritans rejected Jesus because he was heading for Jerusalem. That's the key phrase in this passage because he was heading for Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was where the temple was built. They rejected that. They rejected the Old Testament and they rejected all of that that came in the Old Testament to do with the temple and God and so on. The disciples, notice that one of them is John and we'll see John in today's passage in Acts. The disciples are outraged and in this very even and measured response, they're desperate to call fire down from heaven and just nuke everybody in the town. So, with that setting in mind, with that background, let's fast forward a year or two to the book of Acts, what we're going to look at today, to the point where Jesus has died, he's risen from the dead, he's conquered death and sin, he's risen from the dead, and he's about to ascend into heaven. And just before Jesus returns to heaven, he says to the twelve disciples, including James and John, who wanted to call fire down from heaven, and he says this, "...and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem." So far, so good. And in all Judea, that's fine, they're Jews. And Samaria, to these people that you wanted to nuke and destroy with fire, and to the ends of the earth, and that's to all the Gentiles, everybody else. And the Jews didn't like the Gentiles much either. So the twelve apostles, as they led the early church, were commanded by Jesus, as Jesus is ascending to heaven, the thing he commands the disciples to do is to go out into all the world in a three-stage evangelism strategy. And he predicts and prophesies and commands them firstly to go to the Jews, then to the Samaritans, and then to the Gentiles, to all those who were not Jews to the very ends of the earth. And if we turn to Acts 8, we find that by this stage there's around 7,000 Jews have become Christians in Jerusalem and in Judea. But now these Jewish Christians, as we saw last week, are beginning to be um, persecuted and they 're scattered, and we saw that last week didn 't we and they 're scattered because of persecution from the Jews and the first place they scattered to is Samaria, it was the nearest area around them and so Philip began to preach as he 's one of the people who scattered. He begins to preach to the Samaritans about Jesus. Look at what it says in acts four in acts eight four to five those who'd been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. so here we have the people. That had rejected most of the Old Testament, rejected the Jewish temple, and were therefore ignorant about the prophecies of the Messiah, or most of them, who he would be. And here they are now embracing the Old Testament as it's preached by Philip. As Philip, as Philip preached the word and as he proclaimed the Christ, they embrace this now. And they embrace the truth about the Messiah. So let's read from Acts in the, in, in the passage that, that links on straight away from this verse that we read. Let's read from Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 25. So Philip is preaching and many people are accepting and there are demons being cast out and people are being healed and Philip is performing signs and wonders uh, as a testimony and as a, a way of drawing people's attention to the gospel as he preaches it and then we get into verse 9 and something else is going on. So let's read verse 9 to 25. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and had amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. Now, just pause there. Some of your translations might have Simon down as a magician. He was not a magician. He was not Paul Daniels doing magic tricks. Okay, this, that probably dates me a little bit. But he's not some guy p- like pulling rabbits out of hats. This is a sorcerer. This is a man probably possessed by a demon, heavily involved in the demonic and the occult, doing real things, these are real things that are happening, inspired by the demonic occult, okay? He's he's practicing sorcery. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is the divine power, known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. Not magic as we would think, but sorcery demonic power. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, they had simply been baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So when Philip preached about Jesus, many of the Samaritans put their faith and their trust in Jesus. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And as the Samaritans embraced the truth of the Bible, the Old Testament that they'd rejected, and the reality of Jesus being the Messiah and the one who could save them, word got back to Jerusalem. Verse 14 says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, the very word of God they had rejected for centuries, they sent Peter and John to them. Here's the the guys who wanted to nuke them uh, a year or so earlier. The Samaritans had accepted the word of God. And as Samaritans, they had had to humble themselves and accept that they had been wrong all along. They'd finally accepted the Old Testament and that salvation was from the Jews, as Jesus had said to that woman, that God could and would save them through a Jewish Messiah. And so they had to submit to two of the apostles who came from Jerusalem, the very place they hated and rejected. If they wished to be saved and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had talked about when he'd met with the Samaritan lady, remember he said that God is spirit and from now on you need to worship in spirit and in truth. If they were to receive this gift of this spirit, then they would have to recognise that the saviour of the world was a Jew. He was not a Samaritan. That Jesus was a king whose earthly capital was Jerusalem and not Gerizim. And that Jesus called the temple in Jerusalem my father's house. Jesus was the very Jew that had been long predicted in the very scriptures which for centuries they had rejected. And because the preaching of the good news about Jesus to the Samaritans and and their acceptance of it was such a key moment, this, this, this... turning away, it wasn't all the Samaritans, but this large group of Samaritans, for the first time, they embraced the Word of God, they embraced um, Jerusalem, they embraced the temple, they embraced the Messiah. Because this was such a moment in salvation history, in biblical history, something unique takes place and is recorded for us in the passage. Look at verses 15 to 16. When they arrived, that's uh, uh, Peter and John, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because of the history of the Samaritans, which we've looked at a little bit this morning, God did something special. Although they believed in Jesus, as Philip preached to them, God withheld the, the gift of the Holy Spirit for them until they were prepared to submit to the apostles from Jerusalem as they laid their hands on them. They had to submit to the apostles, to the apostles being Jews, to Jerusalem. They had to submit to the Old Testament scriptures that they had uh, ignored and rejected for so long. And it was important that the Jesus that they would believe in was the Jesus, the, the Jesus, the Messiah of the Bible, and not one of their own inventing. Because they rejected so much of the Old Testament, they were in danger of inventing and creating their own Messiah, because they were acting in ignorance. And it was important that they accepted and believed in the Jesus the real Jesus, the Jesus of history, the Jesus rooted in and contained in all the Old Testament scriptures. And so when they submitted themselves to the Word of God and to the Jewish apostles from Jerusalem, then God gave them in a very visible sign that then nobody could uh, argue and the Jewish Christians, particularly who would have been brought up in this culture of hating Samaritans, couldn't argue with the fact that the Samaritans were now accepted by God and were now part of God's family and were now Christians. So God gave them this long-promised gift of the Spirit, just as the apostles had received him back in Acts 2 at the Feast of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down. Verse 17 says this, Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now Acts 8 doesn't say so, but it implies, and particularly as Simon, what Simon sees uh, indicates that Simon saw something actually tangible happening, not just people laying on of hands, So it implies that as they received the Holy Spirit, something miraculous happened. Probably they began to praise God in different languages just as the Jewish Christians had done back there at the Feast of Pentecost in Acts 2. There was something tangible, visible, miraculous going on as the apostles laid hands on them and as the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, however, it is really important to understand that this passage doesn't teach us That when we trust in Jesus, that we need to receive the Holy Spirit at some subsequent point in our lives. That is what happens here. They get saved, and then we don't know how long, possibly a day, a week, whatever. They then receive the Holy Spirit. But that is because of the unique situation going on here in salvation history, in biblical history. Something similar would happen in Acts 10, and we're going to look at Acts 10 in, in the autumn. Um, and this is when the Gentiles are first preached to and something similar happens again to demonstrate to the Jews that God was now accepting the Gentiles as well. But this is not the normal pattern for us today. It happens on these three occasions. The Spirit comes down in a very demonstrative way, a very tangible way, in Acts 2, in Acts 8 and in Acts 10. But it's not the normal pattern for us today. If you look at Romans 8 verse 9, it says this, And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So, in other words, if we read that the other way around, if we are a Christian, we have to have the Holy Spirit. We cannot belong to Jesus unless we have the Holy Spirit. So every person who trusts in Jesus receives the Holy Spirit and is filled with the Holy Spirit at the moment they uh, trust in Him. They don't have to have some, sub- some subsequent miraculous experience. This situation with these Samaritans was a, a one-off unique situation where God was doing something special. And apart from when something similar happens, when the First Gentiles trust in Jesus in Acts 10. We never really see this happening anywhere else. There are many other instances of people becoming Christians, but we don't see this happening anywhere else, and that's because of what God was uniquely doing in this situation. And we're never taught that this is meant to happen anywhere else in the New Testament. So first, you write on your outline this morning, all believers are filled with the Holy Spirit at conversion. It's really important that we understand this, that we're not, you know, if you haven't had some miraculous experience of the Holy Spirit, that doesn't make you a second-class Christian All believers are filled with the Spirit at the moment you trust in Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit which enables you to trust in Jesus, who brings you to life and enables you and gives you that gift of faith to put your faith and trust in Jesus. If you've trusted in Jesus, then you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. However, however, and it's a big however, God may well give you subsequent miraculous experiences of His Holy Spirit. That's really important to stress that God may well give you subsequent miraculous experiences of His Holy Spirit. And if He does, that's fantastic. You may have experienced that, you may in the future, and that's great. We should always be seeking to open ourselves up to more of the Holy Spirit, to experiencing Him and encountering Him, to allowing Him to control every area of our lives. And sometimes when we do that, we will experience Him in a miraculous way. The Bible doesn't say that this will happen every time we, we, we kind of open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit, but on a daily basis as we surrender to God, as we do what Paul says in Ephesians, as we are go on being filled with the Spirit, they may, uh, that, that may well happen in a miraculous way. It may well happen for you, and if that does, that's fantastic. But it's not a mandatory thing, and it's not linked with our salvation. This is a, uh, a three-part, unique situation going on here in Acts 2, Acts 8, and Acts 10. Now, having accepted the Word of God, the Old Testament Scriptures, and, and, and having accepted Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, and as their Saviour, and having now been filled with the Holy Spirit because they'd, they'd submitted to the apostles, these Samaritans were now part of God's family. At one time, they would have hated Philip, and they would have hated Peter and John. And Peter and John would have hated them. They did. Look, just look at how they responded when, when they didn't like them. You know, call fire down on these people, Lord. We hate them. Kill them all. Get rid of them. And yet now, here they are, friends. Not just friends, family. Brothers and sisters united together. Their ethnic identity had now been replaced by their spiritual identity. They were no longer primarily Samaritans or Jews. They were now primarily followers of Jesus. And that's one of the wonderful things about the good news about Jesus. As as we preach the gospel, as we preach the good news, and as people respond, it brings people together together who would never otherwise come together, people who would have been strangers and sometimes even enemies of each other, people of different races, people of different backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, social standing, whatever it might be. As, as people trust in Christ, it brings us all together. Let's be honest, most of us here this morning would never mix with each other if we weren't in this church because we're from all sorts of different walks of life, even different nationalities and races. And yet the thing that unites us is Jesus. And isn't that wonderful that we're now family and our skin colour, our ethnic origin, our language, our accent, our social standing, all of that becomes utterly irrelevant when we trust in Jesus because now you're my brother, you're my sister, regardless of what you look like or how you talk or what your social standing is or your education or anything else. See, write this down, the gospel unifies people. The gospel unifies people. It brings people together who were once strangers, who were once enemies so often. And that has a consequence. It means that we must treat all believers the same. We must treat all believers the same. There have been utter scandals throughout church history where churches have set themselves up as white churches or this kind of race or that kind of race. And so often there has been an under-the-surface or even an intrinsic racism or attitudes of social standing and social class, that should never have any room in God's people where as we come as God's people, as brothers and sisters together, we may have all differences and that's great. We can celebrate those and learn from each other and celebrate our diversity and the different ethnic backgrounds and all the rest of it. But as we come together, we're we're united in Jesus and we're family together through Jesus. There is no place for racism, for sexism, for discrimination due to someone's education or social standing or employment. The one place where all of that should be absent is in the local church. The one place, we might experience it in other places, but the one place where nobody should feel excluded or treated differently because of who they are or what they look like or how they talk or anything like that is within the local church. And it's fantastic, isn't it, that we can come together as one irrespective of our backgrounds, and be united in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that fantastic? At the foot of the cross, the level or the ground level is very flat, isn't it? At the foot of the cross, we all come as empty-handed, hopeless sinners, desperately needing a Saviour. Doesn't matter what colour skin we are, doesn't matter how rich we are or poor we are, how clever we are or not, what education we have, As we come to Jesus, as we come to the foot of the cross, the the ground is level, we're all the same. We come hopeless sinners, empty-handed, nothing to bring, desperately needing a Saviour. And as we look up to Jesus, He reaches down and He saves us, irrespective of who or what we are. Now, if Jesus does that to us, surely we ought to do that to one another. If Jesus is capable of reaching beyond and reaching down and picking us up, irrespective of who we are, then we, who are we to withhold that from one another? It's wonderful, is it? The family of God, where we can truly be united together as brothers and sisters, as family. Now, the other major event that takes place in this important passage is this encounter between Simon the sorcerer and the apostles. Simon the sorcerer, and he's in this encounter with the apostles. If we look back to verse 8, we read about what was happening as Philip was preaching about Jesus. It says there with shrieks evil spirits came out of many many paralytics and cripples were healed. As Philip preached the Holy Spirit was a, was also at work through him not only to cause people to trust in Jesus but for people to be delivered from demonic oppression. Clearly Satan and de- demonic forces were very much at work in Samaria and many people were on demonic influence just as they are today here in this country. And one man who was at the heart of this demonic occult world in Samaria was this man Simon. He had real demonic power and through his demonic occult activities he created for himself a huge following of people with the fame and the power that went with it. However, something amazing seems to happen because look at verse 13. Simon himself believed and was baptized and he followed Philip everywhere astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. And at first we read that and we think, fantastic, this man who was deeply involved in the demonic occult and all sorts of evil occult practices has trusted in Jesus and has become a Christian. But all is not as it first seems. We read on. What follows shows that actually he doesn't have the faintest idea of what the historical Jesus, the one prophesied about and rooted in the Old Testament was. He didn't have any true idea about the Holy Spirit. He was quite prepared to believe Jesus in Jesus and get baptised in his name. But to him, Jesus and the Holy Spirit were just two powers that he wanted. More powerful, but in his mind, they were of the same kind of the demonic powers that he already had and was using. Verse 18 says, When Simon saw that the Spirit was given, at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He obviously saw something miraculous... Probably they were speaking in different languages. The Holy Spirit enabled them. He said, I want this power. I've already got a lot of demonic power. I want, I, I want this as well. He was prepared to pay a considerable sum of money to add Jesus and the Holy Spirit to his repertoire, so to speak, so as to gain greater power, greater power over people and to build up his own power and his own fame and income. And Peter was having none of it. Look at what he says. Peter, asked, Your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Simon was simply after power, fame and money and influence and he hadn't believed in Jesus in the sense of repenting of his sin and turning in faith to Jesus for forgiveness. It was belief in the sense, yes, belief that there is this I've just seen it, I've just seen the Spirit at work, I've seen this and I believe that it's there, and I'm seeing it. But he hadn't been truly converted. And he jealously actually wanted the, the power that he saw displayed of the Holy Spirit through Philip and then through Peter and John. But look at what Peter said to him. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Now we don't know what happened to Simon. Did he truly repent at this point? Did he genuinely trust in Jesus? Did he turn away from the demonic world he was steeped in? Luke doesn't tell us. The writings of the early church leaders outside of the Bible suggest not in actual fact. But Luke, as he writes the book of Acts, doesn't tell us. What Luke does want us to see, though, is the reality of the demonic world and the power of Satan at work in people's lives in this account, whether they realised it or not. The people who the the, the evil spirits came out of when Philip was preaching probably didn't realise they were demonised and satanically oppressed. And maybe even Simon didn't fully understand what he was involved in and the true nature of the powers that he actually held. But that's the nature of what Satan does. He is known in the Bible, one of his names is the deceiver, and he deceives people. And by nature, when you are deceived, you don't realise that, do you? That's why it's deception. So we think things, even as Christians, and often we're being deceived by Satan, and we don't realise that because it's deception. And here in the Western world, when we we look at everything with a scientific rational world view and so we dismiss the demonic and the occult but we do at our peril as christians you know we often say that we believe in satan and we believe that the demonic world exists but then we behave as if it doesn't we say yeah we believe in all of that but actually our behavior then shows that we don't really believe in it we treat everything as if it's just physical as if it's just rational when in reality everything is spiritual Every situation, every, every single thing that's going on in your life and my life is ultimately spiritual. We often fail to see what we're struggling with in life or the obstacles that we have to deal with are actually demonic. We often fail. We look at situations and struggles and problems and things that we come up against and we treat them purely rationally, purely materially and we fail to realise that often what, we, what we're encountering is the demonic. Now, we don't want to give Satan too much attention and blame for everything. When I trip over a stone on the pavement, it's because I wasn't looking where I was going. It wasn't because Satan was under the stone. But we do need to expect that so much of what we struggle with in within life will have a demonic and a satanic aspect to it. And if we dismiss this, then Satan has deceived us. If we dismiss this, then Satan has deceived us. The Bible says this, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the physical reality of this world but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That is our primary struggle. It is not against the material. It might manifest itself in material things, but our principal struggle as followers of Jesus is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And our default action is to look for physical solutions to our struggles and problems, when actually the real solution is often a spiritual one. We're in a spiritual battle, which often manifests itself in physical ways, So when we have physical problems, we need to to see where... Is it possible that there is a spiritual dimension to what I'm going through here? Is it possible that there is a spiritual dimension to what I'm encountering or to what's happening here? Write this down. We need to be prepared for spiritual warfare whilst knowing that God is above all. We need to be prepared for spiritual warfare. Paul says, you're in it. Whether you like it or not, we're in it. It's happening. It's a reality. So we need to face up to that and ask ourselves the question... Is this what I'm experiencing? If we're not prepared to face up to the reality that we're in a spiritual battle, then we've already been deceived by Satan, who in the West deceives us with the rational, uh, sort of scientific mindset. We must wake up to the reality of the spiritual warfare that is going on all around us, unseen. However, we do not need to be afraid, and this is really key. God is bigger than Satan. God and Satan are not equals. God is God. Satan is just the created being. Very real, very powerful, but he is nothing like God. And he that is in us, the Holy Spirit, is greater than Satan, the one that is in the world. Amen? Amen. He that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. So we don't need to fear Satan or the demonic world. God is greater than all and is above all. But we do need to face up to the reality of spiritual warfare. As Philip and the apostles preached the gospel, they came face to face with evil spirits and demonic powers, but they were undaunted. They didn't run away scared. Knowing that they were filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit, they were able to press on and keep spreading the gospel. And that's what we need to do. We need to be prepared for spiritual warfare and ready for the attack to the enemy, knowing that our struggle isn't with flesh and blood, but with spiritual forces of evil, but always knowing that we have the Holy Spirit and so when we face these attacks, we need to pray for the power of the Spirit and take command of these situations in the name of Jesus. And we need to pray and ask God for insight that he might show us what is going on in the spiritual realm and what action we need to take, whether that's to resolve spiritual conflict in our own lives or to try to help someone else do the same. So the moment that we trust in Jesus, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's amazing, isn't it? He comes and He lives within us. God takes up residence in us. We don't need to go looking for Him. He's already within us if we've trusted in Jesus. And as we're filled with the Holy Spirit, then we are united together with every other person on this planet who's ever trusted in Jesus. And so we have this wonderful unity between all sorts of different people brought about by trusting in Jesus and being filled with the Spirit. But just as we have the Holy Spirit within us, we also need to be aware that there are evil spirits all around us doing their level best to attack us in all sorts of different ways. But he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. One day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, including every evil spirit and including even Satan himself. We're going to sing in closing, Our God is Greater. And when the song is finished, the service will be over. If We'll sing this and proclaim it as a prayer. But if you want to talk to him about anything i said this morning, please do come and chat with me. I'll be over there at the door. Thank you.
1: Thank you.